think about all the clunkier recording devices we had, <laughs> and now we're just doing this. So clunky. This is just ridiculous. Well, this wouldn't have even been possible. You need right. a van to, to right. do or this. Like, <laughs> like Abscam or something. Abscam, what is yeah, that? Yeah, that's before your time, I'm sorry. <laughs> the government uh, had these guys posing as Arab sheiks and they would go into hotel rooms and bribe uh, public officials. And then uh, as soon as they took the money, nabbed them. As we sit here telling stories till it's quarter after three. The details are so gory, but that's how they're supposed to be. And this waiter must be wondering if we're ever gonna leave. Hey, everybody, I'm John Kim Fay, and welcome to Talking at the Diner, the show where musicians and creatives tell me their stories, and also the one show that isn't afraid to bring up Abscam. <laughs> the more obscure the references, the better I say. Anyway, I am really excited about this episode today. My guest is Ben O'Neill. He's a songwriter, a virtuoso guitar player, an educator. He's taught at the University of the Arts in Philadelphia for many years. He's played in Philly bands like the MLMs, the Mini Qs, and he recently released his solo EP, Light Volume 2, the logical follow-up to his 2021 EP, Light Volume 1. And I have been playing this record, I shit you not, non-stop. It's not an understatement to say I'm kind of obsessed with Light Volume 2. I think it's brilliant. And here's a little sample for you. Tell me kindly Tell me true Is it ever for me To truly know you In addition to his own projects, Ben has been a touring musician for close to two decades, playing guitar for neo-soul artists like Jill Scott and Music Soul Child. And for the past several years, he's been the touring lead guitarist for a guy you've probably heard of, a guy named John Legend. He's played some of the biggest stages imaginable. He's appeared on late-night TV and is in the very unique position of playing guitar night after night with one of the biggest artists in the world. And one of his main challenges is balancing that life both on and off the road. I'm deliberately trying to make this introduction as brief as possible because our conversation was, quite frankly, substantial. As with several of my guests on the pod, we drove to the diner together, so we entered the chat in the car and it was already in full force by the time we arrived at the Penrose Diner in South Philly. An underrated spot, I have to say. So, without further ado, let's get right to it. Here's my conversation with Ben O'Neill, right here 
on Talking at the Diner. Everything is on the table when we're talking at the diner. I was, uh, I was just saying to a friend the other day, I have this tendency to, <laughs> within like two, three minutes of a conversation, to just get straight down to the to the bone. <laughs> to the bone. Like, what are we doing here? Yes. Let's cut the crap. It's <laughs> like, well, I'm sorry. That's, you that, didn't no, sign that's up the, for that's, this. No, no, no. That's, that's exactly what I sign up for. Like, let's get rid of the idle chit chat. <laughs> It's like it's cool, it's cool in a way, and uh, but with somebody you just met, you know what I mean? It's oh like right, maybe you right. don't. <laughs> You're talking about complete strangers. I mean, sometimes, <laughs> yeah. Like, you know what the problem is? Is that people always ask like, "How how are you doing?" You know, or mm. like, "What what do you do?" <laughs> you know, what do you and do? Like, and it's not a simple answer. Well, it is a simple answer, but like I think we as musicians feel like we have to like explain ourselves. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, yes, and for me that also opens up the whole like the existential questions that come with that. Right. I my choices. How how am I doing? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) How how am I? That's a that's that's a question that I can't even. That's answer for myself, that's what I'm my friend. Saying. Like I'm trying to figure that out every day. Why are we starting the conversation? With <laughs> right. Give me something simple. <laughs> like, oh, you put on pants, something like that. <laughs> I guess my question to you is: is how was it for you to have a conversation with a with like a what was it, a loan officer with no pants on? <laughs> Um, you I feel like I have all those conversations. Oh, okay, <laughs> you feel like you have something over them that they don't even know. When the when the number comes up, I'm like, hold on a second. Zut. <laughs> 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 uh, I yeah, I mean, I just come back from a run. It's a very humid day. I was I was soaked. <laughs> Actually, so when when the number came up I realized oh this is this person I've been waiting to hear from yeah so I actually put on underwear so I felt like more (laughs) prepared you were actually (laughs) throwing them a bone (laughs) I was most people wouldn't even get this pal (laughs) (laughs) I felt like I had taken a step in the right direction given where I had just been a moment before I think, and this is a real fear that I have, I think the thing that keeps me from having phone conversations while nude is that I'm always afraid I'm going to accidentally hit FaceTime. Sure. And yeah. uh, that would be the end of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I had a, actually, during the, during the pandemic, I had a, a strict rule that I would... I would be appropriately dressed for every Zoom meeting. Like I, I, I would. And, and what was the the root of that for you? 
Uh, fear. <laughs> fear. You know, because I didn't, I didn't want, you know, it's like they only see it from the, you know, torso up. Right. I, but I didn't want to take anything for granted. It was a whole new world, to be sure. Plus, I was usually, you know, I was either on, on meetings with colleagues mm-hmm. in, a, in a, like at the university, so it's kind of like an official capacity, right. you know what I mean? Or uh, working with college students, you know, so it's like you want to present. I actually, just in general, like the, the dress code there is, is really whatever you want it to be, but I tend to be a, just a, a little more formal than it needs yeah. to be. Um, just for my own. So I like, I wore a lot of collared shirts even though I didn't need to <laughs> for swimming <laughs> lessons. Well, hey, you know, it just, I think it just shows a certain level of taking it seriously. I, I did the same when I, I mean, I didn't last on, I didn't last in academia much longer once the Zoom pandemic thing started. How was that for you? Could you teach effectively? Uh, I, I actually found that uh, guitar lessons in particular uh, worked surprisingly well over Zoom. Like there's a, there's a lot of information that can be conveyed, at least the way I think about it. I mean, the thing that cannot be conveyed is two people in a room making music together. That doesn't happen, right. which is uh, a lot. You yeah. know what I mean? But yeah. there's a lot of information that uh, that you need to understand and, and work on if you're trying to play guitar right at a college level so actually I found it to be fine now I don't even teach uh, I when I teach privately I don't even teach in person People oh like, it's all zoom well no at the university I'm still in person we, okay. we obviously we're back in person but when I teach uh, in uh, for my private studio mm-hmm. I don't even I'm like I'm not uh, <laughs> I'm not coming to your house I'm not coming to you no we, I like I can, and this is not, it's like, this happens to me regularly. I'm always like, man, what am I going to show this person? And then, um, there's no shortage of information. It's like, I'm able to convey a fair amount of relevant information in a fairly understandable, concise way Mm -hmm. over Zoom. And then usually they're like, okay, I'm going to need a month to like work on this and I'll come back to you. (laughs) So, so anyway, long story short, I found it to be cool in a lot of ways and then I also found that the the pandemic the pandemic was highly disruptive and very challenging for for I mean most of us I think it certainly was highly disruptive for my career mm-hmm. but I found that that a lot of the students like had a real challenge with it they had a, they had some challenges with staying focused being motivated I don't know I Overall, overall, I thought it went pretty well. That's good. Yeah. It, um, I don't think it went well for me. <laughs> it, <laughs> it drove me out of academia, um, which is fine. I needed to leave. It's ah, too bad. They could really benefit from you. Well, in a strange way... I'm inching toward it again, but in a different capacity. So with the stuff I'm doing with the book, 
my goal or one of my goals is to go into academic settings and essentially tell my story. It's kind of like a half performance, half, um, we'll call it edutainment. Um, but I'm very interested in speaking to a number of different groups. If you're talking about like students, obviously aspiring musicians or musicians from underrepresented communities, I think I could have something valuable to yeah. share with them. Would that be more of a... Like bringing me in as like yeah, a... Yeah, it's almost like a consultant. A thing. speaker. I mean, really, really, use really. That. Yeah, it's sort of like master class or... Yeah. Yeah. That, well... Which I think suits what I want to do better than having to prepare a whole term's worth of stuff. Yeah. I think that what I have to offer might actually be received better in that form yeah. than like alright I'm your teacher listen up nerds uh, which is how I started every day of Drexel's <laughs> sup nerds <laughs> the, the thing that I'm grappling with as an educator mm -hmm. is I think earlier so I've been I've been teaching at UARTS for 10 or 12 years earlier it was like do I have anything to offer and and I fortunately and I'm like very reluctant to give myself credit for anything but but fortunately the answer to that is yes you do have something to offer yeah uh, now the thing that I'm grappling with is how do I uh Keep expectations high. Uh, keep keep the expectations rigorous, and still meet the student where they are. Mm -hmm. uh, because what I find is, and this is not the student's fault; they don't have any any professional context. But what I find is that they generally. don't have a, an understanding of how hard they are supposed to be working or how hard they're going to have to work. Right. And, and it's on you to provide the rigor. Exactly. Uh, and hopefully some, you know, because of my professional experience, I can provide some insight, some, I don't know, some insight into like, oh, yeah. this is like... Are you kidding? You have the most insight of anybody I know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, thanks. And but you know, they don't. It's like they don't. I don't know. They. It's. Uh, it's so. Like, how do I? How do I express that in a way that is uh, relatable, mm -hmm. um, inspiring? You know what I mean? Yes. Like, I definitely had some teachers who, who you know, would just drop the hammer on people and, and kind of squash them. You know what I mean? And that's, that's not the <laughs> like mode a bug these days, right. you know? No. And, uh, 
but then on the other on the sort of other side of the that spectrum is this I I fear that if if we as the educators don't hold the line somewhere there's not going to be a line you know what I mean they're just going to be like ah, they're going to go out there and they're not they're not really going to be able to record function in a recording studio they're not really going to be able to write a song because they've never actually finished a song while they were you know what I mean because like, yeah. I, I see this all the time it's like people are people spend week after week just not accomplishing a single task I'm like man um, bro life is hard I, you're going to have to do better than this yeah well I think that what you're describing is quite rampant like the inability to finish tasks, I see that all around me and people in my own world. And um, it's not just in a musical context, you know. Oh my God, what a shit parking job. Well, you didn't really have it. Uh, I'm going to just, I'm just going to, you know. Slim as ever, John. It can be done. Ugh. I, uh, sometimes Joe's like, I'll pull the car forward another foot or two or something, you know, so you can get out because there's like a tree blocking the thing. And I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> nope, <laughs> not doing that. <laughs> Is the stuff you do at UArts always a one-on-one -on -one situation or is it classes as well? Well, so I, I teach lessons and I also uh, thank you coach ensembles oh, okay. so it's small groups you know maybe 10 at the most it's very impressive to me how you're able to balance very different aspects of your your musical life you know I mean yeah it's going great bro because <laughs> I'm sure like your mind has to be sort of like divided up in some ways, you know, like, because you're always, hello, how are you doing? Well, how are you? Do we need a few minutes? Uh, I'd like a minute. Coffee and water, please? Same. I mean, if you know you have to, you know, fly to Asia or something, <laughs> but you're still in the mode of like, I also got to give this kid a lesson today. <laughs> That's true. I'm sure there's a lot of mental juggling that goes on. You know? Yeah, I mean, there, there are occasions <laughs> where I have to bite my tongue because, you know, it's like, did you do this thing that I very specifically assigned to you and then reminded you about? And they're like, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> and I'm like... Yo, I literally just got back from the other side of the world. Like, I spent more time this week thinking about your assignment than you did. Right. And I was just in Dubai. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like, so, yeah, I, but I try to, I try to not lay that resentment on them too much. No, you, you, know? you have to, uh, 
Well, that's the thing. It's like it's almost uh, imperative that you keep it to yourself. Thanks. Uh, yeah, it, you know what though? I think uh, I genuinely like teaching. I, er, that sure my helps. folks are teachers, and my brother's a teacher, and mm -hmm. uh, I love music, and I, I'm still I love learning about music, and it's like. I keep learning about music. Yeah. Because they keep asking me to teach music. I am a big fan of the videos that you put on your Instagram because what you're what you are doing is you are so seamlessly and flawlessly executing these things that I like my musical brain can hardly wrap itself around what you're doing sometimes. <laughs> and, but well, I, I find it very uh, inspiring and simultaneously like, well, I'm never gonna be able to do that, so I can just enjoy it for what it is, which is like a, you know, it's usually like a very interesting variation on some kind of scale that I either don't know right, a never lot heard about, of never yeah. heard of yeah. and why, why would you i i i love it like i it's it's almost like it's a hypnotic uh practice to watch and i wonder if it provides any kind of that kind of feeling for you like an almost hypnotic uh almost like it's soothing to your mind <laughs> to do to go through those practices yeah Thanks. I'm glad you like that stuff. I, uh, I mean, and and that stuff comes straight out of the, the syllabus, the guitar syllabus that I'm teaching, and so mm. I'm consequently I'm practicing it. Right. And, and and then there's there's a lot of like individual variation, and, and but so that's an example of how teaching is is also sewing. It's also like sewing into my musical practice. Mm -hmm. um, so by doing that, you're also honing your teaching. Yeah. Uh, chops skills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, as somebody who's honestly like never taken a guitar lesson, that's crazy. Like, no, it's not. I mean, not so, a single so many, guitar so many lesson. People are, I just learned through observing guitar players that I played in bands with. That's the only, you know. Um, Actually, I, I know, I know a bunch of great musicians who also never took a formal lesson and, and learned that way, just through community, basically. Um, so, can you walk me through? Sorry, you're asking. Me so, so if I was um, like a new guitar student, what would, what would day one? look like or, yeah. or would you basically say well play me something so I know what I'm dealing with yeah what what, um, what I tend to do and also to your previous question it, it can be a meditative practice mm -hmm. uh, like when I'm when I'm on the road I, I have a distinct warm-up that I go through before you know before we play so you know, for probably at least 20, usually longer, maybe 45 minutes I'm before the show, I'm going through a distinct warm-up. 
it's part of my routine to like try to add some stability to an otherwise unstable <laughs> environment. <laughs> unstable world. Yeah. And the stuff I'm working on, it is generative because it's like, oh yeah, let me try this idea. You, get, you work through it a couple ways. And then it, as soon as you have some idea like, I'm going to try to play this scale this way with with the related arpeggio or with related chord inversion or something like that. You think of something else. Just for example, here's the major scale and here are the arpeggios and the chords that go with that. What if I did it with... What if I made this one alteration to the major scale? I'll play harmonic major instead, which has a flat six instead of a major six. And, you know, and th- then it's like it spins off infinitely in in so many directions. So it's, it's very generative as long as you're looking at it as a fun journey instead of some Im- impossible uh, <laughs> labyrinth of, of information that you'll never master, which it is. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know what's funny, like, for, the funny thing is, is like, I'll put up stuff of my music, or, and, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll get some nice responses, and then, like, I started putting up these scale videos, and, like, people, I don't know why, but, like, people watch them, I don't, it's, it's odd, you know, and, like, there's some questions or conversations, I'm like, of all the things that would be interesting to people, you would think a guitar player playing scales and arpeggios would not really be well, that interesting. I think that that sort of speaks to kind of a shift in the culture and how we kind of... There's a lot of musicians that that's their thing online. It's maybe not playing scales, but it's like a display of your talent. (laughs) Yes. It's like, you know, let me just establish my dominance here. (laughs) That's true. And then, you know, it's almost like a trickle-down thing. Like, when I, I took this talent, I wrote a song. If you give a fuck, right. maybe you don't. Right. But that's kind of seems how it works, almost. Like, we've, we're, we're in a post-song society. We really are. Where it's like, just give me, like, 15 seconds of what you do, and I'm good. Honestly. You know? It's so odd. I was, man, I was just listening to some Beatles stuff yesterday. I was just playing guitar for fun yesterday, which was an odd experience. And I was <laughs> learning some Beatles songs off, off Meet the Beatles, the early stuff, which mm. I absolutely love. And those songs are, some of those songs are two minutes long. Yeah. Uh, the album is just over 30 minutes long. And, I, you know, we then it's like you think about that expansion. It's like, you know, album rock and... Mm-hmm. Then the the advent of the CD where we could fit seventy eight minutes of music on or whatever it was, and then and now now we're back where it's like two minutes. Like sheesh, bro! Like it's like reading a novel. <laughs> you, you think know? I have like, all that kind of time for you? <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like like John, you know, like speed it up a little bit. We do like that stuff couldn't be more concise. To be honest, I was I was I was learning some of it. Mm-hmm. It's so compact and melodic. There's no fat. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Wow, hey now. Fruit bowl. Um I I wonder about I wonder about that. I wonder about that when I'm when I'm playing music in a live band and then especially next to a DJ and a DJ spinning 30 seconds of one song 
They drop a song, everybody loves it. They drop another song, everybody loves it. They're playing a verse and a chorus of of a song. As a band, as a cover band, you're playing at least two choruses. Because <laughs> we gotta right. kill some time. Yeah, you're right. you know what I mean? It's a long four DJ hours could, otherwise. Could play a thousand songs without breaking a sweat. Anyway, I wonder about that with our attention span. And I mean, also as someone who just wrote a, a book that where you know you, you took years crafting whatever, maybe like three, four hundred pages of 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 your life story, and tr- I'm sure you like trimmed that brutally to get it as concise as possible. Mm-hmm. And you know, where where are we with that? At the same time, I think that. For every pendulum swing, there's a there's still there's still a lane for somebody who needs the the whole novel, for somebody who needs the whole song, for somebody totally who needs the agree. whole memoir. This is you know when it's almost liberating to finally accept that one is so far from the mainstream that there's no point in even trying to like play that game, and you just be yourself. And you will find your lane. Right. I do agree with you. You know, I mean, it may not be um, household name right. status or whatever, but that's okay. I, I agree. And this is also the thing with the, the guitar scales. It's like we're in a situation where big hits on the radio are made with guitar sample packs by producers who are putting together with with and this is not to discount the the sort of like musical intuition that that folks have but no concept of how any of the rules of music work they're just grabbing a a key sample or a guitar sample or you know I was talking with some folks who what made sounds good to right, your ear bang, and that's, that's it. From it's like Legos, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so here I am like playing obscure scales in all twelve keys, you know what I mean? And and like also somehow people are interested in it. So I think that's encouraging. Absolutely. You know, I mean it's such a weird dichotomy in the world. I mean I, I do think that Every time I feel like everything's just a lost cause, (laughs) you get a communique from somewhere in the world. And you're like, okay, I'm not completely alone in my thinking or, you know. Yeah, I agree. Um, and believe me, like I still try to just do whatever I got to do to make whatever I'm doing accessible to whomever. You know, I mean, I just I just posted a uh, you know like a like an Instagram reel, which is like a snippet from my audio book this morning to commemorate. This is the anniversary of. Um, basically my mother's funeral and I had like a pertinent thing from my audiobook that I thought well this might be kind of like a a cool way to talk about it you know because especially with like these death anniversary things it's like you can only like say so much every time you talk like I want to keep that memory alive so I feel compelled to post about it but you end up saying like the same shit 
over and over again. Yeah. And so I got it in my head, like, well, maybe I'll actually create like a little reel that uses a snippet of my audiobook because this is the first first time and since she's been passed away that I've had this ability to share that yeah. with people. Um, and even that, <laughs> I think there's like a time limit for TikTok. I was going to like post it on TikTok and it's like, this video too long. I'm like, all right, fuck you. I'll just do Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I'm God. like, I'm not going to be, you know, like, I'll do many things, but I don't want to have to. <laughs> Sorry, mom. Edit my mother's. <laughs> Couldn't fit into TikTok. Death anniversary. Oh, my <laughs> Tribute for TikTok. <laughs> that is so dark and such a oh, yeah. great representation Very dark. of where we Very are. Very dark. It's been a while since I had a stuffed pepper. Uh, man. Good choice. I woke up this morning. I was like, I'm gonna eat a lot of potatoes today. <laughs> today is a potato day. Uh, so listen, if you, we're taking a guitar lesson with me, mm-hmm. which is funny because I would not give you a guitar lesson. Uh, <laughs> and some people, you know, I actually I had a former student. Who, no, I want to maybe get together, take a lesson with you, talk to you about rhythm plans. Some people think I can do that all right. So I was like, I'm not giving you any more lessons. The, <laughs> because we're not we're not at that stage anymore. This Actually, there's a lot. This, this, this is actually deep, so I'll try to be brief about it. But I remember many years ago, when I was just out of college, I was playing at this club in, in Old City and Pat Martino walked by. It was a huge influence for me. Oh, yeah. One of the big reasons that I even moved to Philadelphia. And he walked by and so I like ran outside and was like Pat, come in. Let me buy you a drink. You know what I mean? Like whatever. He was with his wife and, and they did. They came in and sat down. Did you know him prior to that? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I was I was fortunate. I had met him at UArts and you know, seen a bunch of master classes and taking a lesson with that yeah so yeah um, I had actually yeah long story short he donated he had the signature Gibson model that he donated to the school and there was there was a competition I won the guitar I still have that guitar nice super super meaningful to me um and so when he was leaving you know I said man it's like it's so crazy you know and he said um I can't talk about Pat without like doing a Pat impression. So he said, <laughs> "You remind me of myself <laughs> at your age." <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. And and yeah. he, you know, he said, you know, sitting in at Count Basie's, which was a club in Harlem, mm-hmm. and he was sitting in with the hitters, like the cats. You know what I mean? Like it was, wow. I'm, I'm not like <laughs> that. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, but you know, his point was. And I mean, he did say this. This is not, it sounds crazy, but he was like, we're peers, you know, which was not true. He was a legend, you know what I mean? He was a, one of the greatest guitar players to ever live, but that's the way he thought. It was very generous of him to to welcome me that way, you know what I mean? Where he had met me as a student. Yeah. Similarly, a bunch of years go by, I met this guy named Lionel Lueke, who was an incredible guitar player. He was playing with Herbie Hancock at the time. I was playing with Joe Scott at the time, talking 
about music and guitar and everything. I said, listen, I, I'd love to take a lesson with you. And he said, no, no, take, take my info. We'll, we'll get together and play. Well, now, this is literally one of the greatest guitar players alive. You know uh -huh. what I mean? He's like, no, no. And that's kind of my thing with, with my former student, too, is like, we've, we've moved past that. You've, you've entered a different section. Mm -hmm. We're not, I'm not going to charge you for guitar lessons. It would be ludicrous for me to... But this is the first thing I ask anybody. I say, I, what I say to them is, okay, I'm going to ask you a series of questions, starting with really, really simple stuff, mm -hmm. and then we're going to, I'm going to get increasingly more complex, and hopefully we'll hit a wall. And if we don't hit a wall, then you're with the wrong person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and we'll go from there. So what I normally ask is to show me all the open chords. Normally people can do that. Show me some bar chords. Normally people can do that. Show me some seventh chords, maybe. Play me a C major scale. And I mean nine out of ten. That's where the stumbling block starts. That would probably be, yeah. Right. So plenty of people have a lot of musical experience, but can't play the C major scale, which is, kind. I mean... You know, it's interesting because there's more than one way to approach music, but it's also kind of wild because it would be like, I've used this analogy and you just wrote a book. I would be like, if you came to me, if I was an English teacher or something, you said, I want to write a book. And I said, cool, say the alphabet for me. And you couldn't get through it. Right. And you'd be like, okay, we may need to <laughs> start with some of the fundamentals here. You know, uh, so... Mm -hmm. and, and usually what happens is yes very good thank you through the through the major scale we look at chord relationships circle of force and and how some basic progressions are constructed how those numerical relationships exist which are very simple I'm not a numbers person mm -hmm. and usually in my experience most of the people that I work with have some awareness of this, but it's not fluid for them. They're, they're right. not fluent in it. And, yeah. and so that's what I try to emphasize, that this could be very valuable if you could make sense of uh, kind of the numerical language as it were. Yeah. As a so tool. it becomes fluid. To analyze a song you're learning, to get through a difficult part of a song you're writing. I'm not sure where it should go here. Like, I wrote this song, but it's, it doesn't really have any flavor. I didn't really, now we, we have some intellectual understanding of how we might be able to take an interesting turn. So that's where I start with everybody. And uh, that's what we start working on. That's very cool. I don't know that I ever actually knew the answer to this, but who was the first artist that you did like what you would consider like a full scale tour with yeah that's a that's a good question the the artist that started my career was a gospel artist named Ty Tribbett and when I started with him he wasn't signed mm -hmm. when he did get signed there wasn't any support we were playing churches up and down the eastern seaboard so it, I mean we were half the time we were driving ourselves and sometimes they'd rent a church bus and you know so, at first, like, truly, now that absolutely launched the career. There's no question about that. Uh, but the 
the first pro gig was a guy named Music Soulchild, who was a mm-hmm. R&B singer who had had some success. Um, oh yeah, in 2000, 2004, some. I probably started playing with him in 04. Mm-hmm. And um, well, let me let me go back a little further. I mean, so you get into the world where you could be playing with a Thai tribute because you're playing in church bands, right? So take me into that realm. Looking back on it, it's pretty simple. But in the moment, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, so I was raised in a liberal, non-religious household Mm-hmm. in central Pennsylvania very uh, like I really grew up in like a rural setting outside of a college town I mean it's not even I, it wasn't like, like you couldn't even throw a rock and hit the next house <laughs> like, you could see the next house but you probably couldn't throw that right. you need a really good arm so I had this intuition that turned out to be correct that in order to make a living I was going to have to move to a city mm-hmm. looked at Ithaca College and Ithaca New York was very beautiful but it struck me as kind of a similar setting to what I grew up in mm-hmm. pretty pretty removed certainly wasn't an urban environment yeah and uh, uh, you know I don't know we got some flyer from UArts you know and I was considering Berkeley and considering schools in New York and everything but Philly was closer and UArts was more affordable at the time and um, uh, so, you know, so I applied, I got in and I went and, and right from the gate, it was clear that the best musicians, I mean, maybe not the best, but some of the best musicians in the school came out of gospel music, which mm-hmm. I had had no experience with. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I lived uh, like catty corner from one guy. Uh, who came out of gospel music? His dad at a church. His name was Freddie, and this other guy named Adam was always hanging out in his room. So I would go hang out in that room. They were they were like making beats on an MPC, which at the time was like so important. <laughs> I don't know like what the what the current piece of technology would be, the, mm-hmm. but it was like it was like. It was so important if you were a musician to have an MPC um, in that world. Yeah. And uh, anyway, uh, long story short, they were like, "Yeah, you should, you know, you should come to my dad's church or whatever." You know? So I started doing that. Adam was like, "Listen, I'm playing with this guy named Ty. He's really exciting. He's going to blow up. He's going to be a big deal." Which, of course, you have no, you have no idea. And that turned no out to context. be true. You know? Yeah, but. Uh, you should come play with him. I did that because he's he's a big deal, but it's in a very specific world, right? I mean, oh yeah, it's not like like yeah, nobody you know has heard of Ty Trevor. Yeah, you know, I don't mean the offense by that. It's like, but like everybody you know has heard of John Legend. That's right. The, yeah. <laughs> that was like a distinct change in my career. Where I was like, oh, like like my grandfather are... has heard of this person. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's a very, it's a, you know, it's a very specific, although very important, 
uh, like subgenre of American music, mm-hmm. gospel music. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was. I mean, it was a huge transition. Mm-hmm. People were speaking in tongues. You know, it's just, this is a culturally specific thing, so mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many times I've been the only white person in, in the room. Um, <laughs> yeah. In a room of thousands, sometimes, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, uh, And they, you know, these musicians welcomed me and, you know, treated me as a, as a brother. Mm-hmm. Really, it was life-changing. That's great. Uh, so anyway, those... Uh, artists, the neo-soul artists in the 2000s who were having success, a lot of their producers, a lot of their musicians, the people recorded on them, the people went on tour, were, a lot of them came out of church. And so, you know, I was just just incredibly blessed to like walk into something that was bubbling over. Mm-hmm. And I got on the train, like just about the last train that was leaving that station. And 20 years later, here you are. Yeah. That's great. That's 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 it. I think that's the story. So your own music, which has really stylistically run the gamut from MLMs to mini cues to Ben O'Neill solo. I mean, it's a very broad swath. I'm still in the throes of listening to your latest thing. And I've said this to very few people. But interestingly, a couple of Philadelphia-based artists that I know pretty well have made records that make me feel a similar way of being kind of transported. Like, it, it feels like this specific record is not of this time in a very good way. I think it's because of your choice of instrumentation and the song arrangements are so lush and, um, you know, I'm not, I can't point to specific sections of songs, but, you know, there, I remember thinking at one point, this feels like a 1972 Stevie Wonder thing. <laughs> That's a high compliment. Just in terms of, like, the... You know, he started painting with a, a very different brush. Right. You know, in the sort of InterVisions talking book era. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I was like, this is what this feels like. I mean, thanks. And it's really awesome. I'm so glad you like it. So glad you listened to it. The, I'm glad the lushness is coming across because the... So this is Light Volume 2. Mm-hmm. Um, Light Volume 1 was intentionally sparse, and I, can, I think of it as the black and white mm-hmm. expression yeah. of this collection of songs, and this is the full-color expression of these songs. And so it seems like that's coming across. Yeah, oh, no doubt. Mm-hmm. So that's good. Part of the... I mean, listen, the, the thing is, like... I wrote a lot of heartbreak songs. Mm-hmm. But I'm, you know, fortunately I haven't had to write any of those songs recently. So, yeah. 
so then what are you going to write about? You know, you, you're trying to find something meaningful to write mm-hmm. about. So um, a lot of times my, my whatever I'm reading, I'm usually reading something, influences that. So I was looking at these questions of the passage of time and, and faith and mortality and mm-hmm. how do we make sense of any of this stuff. And I, I wrote the songs I, I, for all three volumes. I'm working on volume three right now. Are all, to me, sort of of a of a moment for me. It's like a multi-year moment, but sure. it's of a chapter in my life. And uh, and then and then how do you how do you execute them? You know, like you, you've written songs. Now, how do we make this? Well, that's something I'm really interested in hearing about because. It's sonically pretty ambitious for like an independent record, which I'm sure you didn't have like thousands and thousands of dollars to do. Nope. So this was a beg, borrow, and steal all day. And also, like, what puts you in that minds? You know, it doesn't sound particularly like anything you had done up to that point to me. Does a switch just go off, and you're just like, I want to make this almost like cinematic sounding yeah, music like um, well okay so I'll tell you a couple things that influenced this and I'm not sure I, I can't say that it was entirely intentional or planned to have ended up where we are mm-hmm. I mean, but, but there were some intentional choices made that obviously led to where we are so one one thing is is that I distinctly wanted this to be a response to to the first volume, which was recorded in a living room with me and Shane Osser, the operate bass player. So it's it's about as so the songs were written after volume one was done. They were no or no not not all, not all of them. No, they mm-hmm. it, uh, they were all. Some of them were written roughly the same time. The, the, how the songs are written is not actually chronological in terms of how they ended up on. Okay. Um, one thing that happened was my bass player Shane had his, I think, grad recital. This is a bunch of years back. He's he's playing upright bass, which is always a challenge to hear. It's <laughs> yeah. it's just you know the distinct notes on an upright bass can be difficult to discern. Yeah. And, and he did his recital with uh, a horn player. Most of it was with a horn player and a drummer who was only playing snare and hack and a ride cymbal. So consequently, the whole low end of the spectrum was available to him okay. to be heard. Yeah, that makes sense. Right? And you could hear it. I was like, wow, that was... I mean, it was a revelation. <laughs> he has been a really important part of my music making, but... And as a collaborator, but not really as a uh, director, you know what I mean. So, so he actually sort of accidentally had a had a big part in how volume <laughs> two okay. uh, was. So I brought in my friend Anwar Marshall to play drums, but I asked him to do it without without a kick drum, which and Anwar is an incredible drummer, uh, but he found that a little disconcerting because it'd be like asking us to play without a right. you know a, a, a low E string exactly. You'd be like, how am I supposed to do? This? 
Um, <laughs> so anyway, he, you know, I compromised. There is some kick drum on the, on the album, which, which was... But the low end is completely dialed out. Yeah, it's on the attack. <laughs> uh, it's like Metallica kick drum. Right. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, the playing is very Lars Ulrich-esque. Uh, yeah, I know. You were probably like, man, was he listening to Ryan the White? So I, I wanted... The thing is, Shane and I played together so much that we had a very propulsive sense of rhythm together. So I wasn't worried about that. I didn't need a drummer to, like, drive the Keep car. Pulse, you know I mean? yeah. We were going to be all right. I needed the drummer to give me some texture. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, well, I want this to be the full color version, so I'm going to ask my friend Corey. Uh, Corey Riker is a very talented musician and tours with John with me to do some arrangements, but I want them to sound a little otherworldly, so he's playing soprano sax and flute and tenor stuff, so it sounds more like, it's almost hard to identify what horns are on the Mm -hmm. album, actually. Uh, It sounds more like woodwinds than like earth, wind, and fire horns. Right. Right? Yeah, it's not like a funky horn section happening. Which I love. Which I love, too. I think that's that's a big part of what makes it seem like it's not from this time, because I think, I mean, all kinds of thoughts occur to me depending on the song. You know, that era in the late 60s and early 70s when it wasn't specifically, like, rooted in rock. It was more sort of just like this, I don't know what other word to say other than like a cinematic feeling kind of sound, you know. Like Odyssey and Oracle was like, is this a rock record? Yeah, exactly. um, But even less sort of like poppy, you know, extremely melodic, but, you know, obviously, again, from track to track, but... um, there's even there's even like a moment. I think your song Evangeline. <laughs> it feels like there's some Paul Simon influence in that one, just in terms of the the melody, the vocal delivery, just the feel of the song. And I know you used to cover uh, "Still Crazy" after all these years, and I know that you're a fan of that stuff. But um, oh, it's, that's some of my favorite music. Yeah, Paul Simon is a good example. James Taylor too, where you're like, what are we? What is happening right now? Like, mm. this, this is absurdly musical. <laughs> it's absurdly musical. Um, I can only Stevie uh, too. I, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. So for me, Paul Simon is the top. Like I, we've, I'm sure we talked about this, but there's to me, there's nobody who hits higher on the musicality scale and the lyrical scale than Paul Simon. Simultaneously, yeah. You know, that simultaneously, as you're right. You could make an argument for Stevie. You could make an argument for for a lot of folks. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, you know, being a being a jazz, I'm appreciator of jazz. Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn were a songwriting team that made impossibly beautiful musical music. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of the, and then Bob Dylan, who I absolutely love. And by the way, I don't care. I love how Bob Dylan sings. <laughs> uh, you know, his his greatest work, lyrically, I think stands among the, the great it's observations of humanity. I it, absolutely agree. Right. But 
musically speaking, right. is not really on the same level as right. Stevie Wonder. He's, you know, he's not really going for that. Right, <laughs> exactly. So what I'm saying, you know, Paul Simon to hit so high on both of those scales right. is is truly unique. And yeah, that's a that's a big influence. The, I think another thing that has helped me on this album is that so on some of my projects, people have been like, you should write more happy songs, you know? And I was kind of like, I just, you know, a bunch of years have passed, and I'm just kind of like, fuck that, man. Well, like, I'm going to write whatever the fuck I think needs to be also, written. Also, the question is, like, what even is a happy song? This is why we're friends. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. I feel like the greatest thing you can do as a songwriter is to write a truthful song that actually contains all of it within it. And the happiness might just come from the catharsis of making it right. and how another person might react to it. But like, you know, I can't even name like Okay, like what about literally happy by Pharrell William? That song doesn't actually make me happy. It doesn't make me happy at all. <laughs> it should be retitled Angry. Because <laughs> that's what it makes me. Which is not. Some pudding? Some pudding? Yeah. What? How much was it? Great. Uh, what, what's Chocolate, flavor? bread, or rice pudding? I'll go bread. Bread pudding, Thank you. Wow. Please. All right. Rose Diner for the Who win. Knew? Damn. I like how she just like took it for granted. You and we had no idea. I thought maybe she was just like, you look like you need pudding. Anyway, I'm happy. not taken away from the song Happy because it is it's a uh, arguably a perfect pop song. Um, I would argue that. But like I don't understand why people would <laughs> <laughs> more of that. More of that, yeah. <laughs> I, I gotta play a gig. It's a little, little, little thing, and they want a bunch of Neo Soul songs, which is interesting because I've been very fortunate to play with a bunch of those artists. Mm -hmm. So I'm reviewing some of this music. Very little of the music is actually happy. Long story short, one of the things that helped me, uh, I'm glad that this album sounds. Of a different time and place, where it sounds, you know, like it's transporting you in some kind of way. Part of what helped me with that was being, being just sort of letting go of the idea that this had to be for anybody else. Oh yeah, uh, and that mm -hmm. that was really helpful. I was just like, yeah, um, this is kind of how I hear it, and I'm not I'm not really expecting as much of an audience from this. I mean, let me ask you a question. And you don't have to obviously have to like out anybody or name names, but like, who would be the kind of person that would say to you, "You should write more happy songs"? That's is it true. A, like, is it are a we fellow, friends? Like, is it a fellow musician? Is it a is it a rando? Like, uh, is it a parent? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure my mom would be pleased if I wrote more happy songs, but um, no, those were a couple of people, a musician, someone else I was working with, you know, it's yeah, I, I don't I, honestly, I don't, I'm not that worried about it anymore, but mm -hmm. I think 
one of the things that we encounter is the the balance between what do I think this should be versus what do I think the audience wants, right? And what I'm saying is I did not factor that into this right. equation at all. Because which is best? Because first of all, <coughs> I think more often than not, anytime you get into the head game of trying to predict what somebody's going to like, you're very rarely what right. What are we talking about? <laughs> That's so ridiculous. It, it's, I, you know, I wonder if when Picasso and Brock were like figuring out Cubism, they were like, <laughs> I wonder. I think people are going to dig people Cubism. Dig this shit, you know? Yeah. Well, so I, they they weren't. Yeah, they weren't in that in the world that we're in. You know where you know the the the, the metrics of selling it comes into such huge you know focus. Yeah, but I guess my my feeling is I've been incredibly fortunate to make a living playing guitar. Mm-hmm. And that whole living is based on how do I, what do they want? That's that's what the question is. What do they want? How do I execute what they want? Whether that's the artist or what the artist thinks the audience wants or what the audience wants. It's I think of it as a as a craftsman approach. Well, this that brings up something in my mind. Like, you've had the opportunity to stand on stage with some of the biggest artists in the world. It's true. What's John's attitude about that, if you can speak on it? <laughs> Is he constantly calculating what if people are going to like what he does, or does he just do what he does? Because he's clearly great at what he does. He is great at what he does. Like, is that a calculated thing, or is he just like, this is what I do? Yeah. Well, um, well, obviously, I, I can't speak for for him, you know. But your, your observations? My observations are that he's a very smart and pragmatic person. Mm-hmm. And also, my observations are that I don't know that I've ever met anybody who had such a mix of like a numbers mind and an expressive mind. Mm-hmm. He can sit at a piano and sing one of his songs or sing a, a Stevie Wonder song or a Bruce Springsteen song mm-hmm. and it's incredibly expressive. He's got an incredibly powerful voice. He's like a real musician. You know oh, what yeah. I mean? There's no denying that talent like he does it night after night after night and there's no tricks but he also is a uh, is someone who is considering strategy and considering uh, longevity and mm-hmm. you know I've, I've definitely worked with some artists who did not have that kind of business mind, mm-hmm. you know? So it's a really interesting combination of traits. Or the in ability one to have like a longer view of what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, he's a, he's a bright person. So it's interesting. It's, I mean, it's, it's great to be around, to be honest, mm-hmm. because in some ways it's kind of the best of both worlds. You know, you have someone who is, who is being strategic and calculating about how he's going to, 
make his next moves, right? Which makes my life better because right. <clears throat> then we don't end up <laughs> on some wild goose chase usually. You know, right? <laughs> and on the other hand, he's also, he's a legitimately great singer and mm -hmm. he loves the music that I love. <laughs> you know, like yeah. you talk to him about it. Like we're always covering Marvin or Curtis or Stevie or some, some great something, some mm -hmm. great music because that's what influenced him. Yeah. Um, and I think that you know, and he's constantly collaborating with with other artists, so he's always sort of open to new audiences, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I think, um, and I, I've seen some people who came out around the same time as him, who have not turned into the pop stars that he is, mm -hmm. right? And I think part of that is just it's just mentality. He was just he was open. Smart, kept going. Mm -hmm. It's it's a really valuable thing for me to observe. Mm -hmm. uh, but also, I think in some ways, I'm I'm very privileged to be a part of it. Well, that's for sure. But I'm privileged to be a part of it because then, with my own art, I can really just think of it as this is my artistic expression, and I'm not particularly concerned about <laughs> right. Uh, this doesn't have to pay the mortgage. Exactly. Is this yeah. is this going to sound like what the kids are listening to? And the answer is apparently, according to you, <laughs> no. Uh, this sounds like it's coming from some completely different era. The cool kids are listening to it. <laughs> just just one observation on on the music too is that I have been really fortunate to, to spend you know twenty years playing gospel music and R and B. Guitar is so important in that music. But usually as a flavor, not the meat, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So having spent a bunch of, you know, doing so many gospel recording sessions and then listening, they're like, Ben, we need you to take a big solo at the end of the song. And then I take a big solo at the end of the song. And then I hear the final version. And really, it's just the lead singer ad-libbing. And there's like way in the back, there's a guitar solo there. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was like, mm -hmm. I grew up on music where like the guitar solo was supposed to be heard. In the front. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And similarly, playing playing with artists where, you know, you you realize that like, man, I'm just, there are spots that, I, that I'm present and other like entire chunks of the show where I'm not being heard by the audience. You know what I mean? So when it came to this, I was like, I'm not putting any fucking keys on my album. I'm not going to be buried under keys. Mm -hmm. All of this stuff is going to come from guitar. Yeah. And because I'm tired of not being heard. You know what I mean? So and the, all the other sort of atmosphere that you hear on the record are, are it's guitar. It's guitar layers. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, right. so that was one of those, just, it was a conscious decision. I wasn't sure how it was going to affect the outcome. Mm -hmm. But I think ultimately... I had a positive effect. Yeah. Like, well, plus the way you're using the guitar and how you're playing some of those parts is—it's—it's it's almost like it could have been played on a keyboard, but it's a guitar. That's the idea, and that's what's cool about it. You know. Which also, a handful of guys who have Dana Ray and JB Brad, who have, I learned as much as I could of their harmonic vocabulary, the keyboard players, and I tried to transfer that to guitar. Oh. So, keys is incredibly important to me. You know what I mean? It's, like, it's incredibly important. The piano is my first instrument, actually. Mm -hmm. But it's not my voice. Yeah. So, there's a, 
there's a lot that goes into that recipe, but then ultimately it's like, well, we're not, no, there's not going to be any keyboard. <laughs> but also, I, also I, I have to say this. I'm so thankful that in the John situation, I am heard in a way that I feel useful. Yeah. And and it, it has not always been like that on other gigs. So in the John right. gig, I'm very grateful for that. That's awesome. So did you ever think that when you wrote Short Flight, <laughs> how prescient that was going to be? <laughs> I don't know where I am, London. Well, the, yeah, Short Flight, I mean, so I wrote that around the time I was playing with Music Soul Child, which is now, you know, about 20 years ago. And um, it was, you know, to express the, the chaotic state that your mind is in when you're traveling mm -hmm. for a living. Yeah. Uh, you never get enough sleep and you, you know, you like, I don't know. Have you ever woke up in a room and you weren't sure where you were? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes for me, as happened in hotel rooms, you wake up, like you, ha you don't, you've forgotten the orientation of the room, for example, like you yeah. don't know where the bathroom is. And mm -hmm. that's like a weird, that's a weird feeling. Yeah. Or you're not sure what city you're in, which is a weird feeling. And then the weirder version is when you wake up in your own place and, and you're also not sure that you're in your own place. Right. You know, that is pretty weird. Uh, I think you and I talked about something similar a while back. Um, I think it was the night I came over to talk to Joanne about the Bon Jovi thing. Which is like that. I love that, that her experience of that was like all positive, which is totally her. Yeah. And your experience of that was, I don't want to say all negative. No, but it wasn't was, all it negative. Was like it was like a lot was... of existential void going on there. Yeah. I love that you two, like, in some ways couldn't have been more close. And in, in yeah. other ways, couldn't have had more opposite experiences. Yeah. I wonder, like, if you have those kinds of experiences. Because you're in situations like that, obviously, commonly where you're playing in front of a huge audience. I've never opened for Bon Jovi. Okay, but you're on that stage and you're, you're, you must be feeling some kind of, you can't <laughs> be completely separate from that. Like you have to be experiencing the, the thrill of it and the high of it to some extent. And then 30 minutes later, you're completely not in that situation yeah. and you're <laughs> in a bunk <laughs> staring at the ceiling or something. Like, yeah, that has to be just a shock to the system to, to some degree. But I guess my question to you, like me only having felt it a handful of times and you perhaps feeling it regularly, how do you deal with it? Like, or, or is it something that you even think about at this point? Oh, man, I could go on about this for a long time. How, where to begin with this? <laughs> 
first of all, on tour, I think, I think, arguably the easiest thing that happens in the day is the ninety minutes or one hundred twenty minutes you're on stage. The show, yeah, that's the easiest thing because you know what you're supposed to do. It's the thing that you actually love doing. You're with a team. We're all pulling together generally. You know mm-hmm. what I mean. One of the challenging parts about that is is riding that experience, just just what you described there. You're in front of, and it does actually. It doesn't really matter if you're in front of thirty people at a at a rock club, or you're in front of three thousand people at a theater, or thirty thousand people at a stadium. I've done all of those things, and that you're you're riding the adrenaline dragon. That's right. that's basically what you're mm-hmm. trying to figure out. You you're trying to control your your mental state before you get on stage so that you can perform well. For me, there's, uh, you know, for folks who are, you know, hired guns, as it were, there's the additional challenge of, excuse me, of executing. It's not just like, I need to have a great show so Mm -hmm. these fans love what they just experienced. Mm -hmm. Which I'm sure is a a lot of pressure. But for me, it's like, if I don't execute... They're going to fire me. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, so. There's an expectation there. There's an expectation of excellence. Yeah. At which we do, right? Through a lot of effort. Your, and, and your, your preparedness. Prepared. That's how you, I yeah. approach it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, that you know, you, you need to sort of control your mental state. Or find find some balance of those things, and the excitement, and whatever challenges are happening in your life at that moment. You know, what I mean? like, ah, oh, I didn't get enough sleep last night. And, uh, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, oh man, I haven't talked to my wife in forty eight hours or something. Mm-hmm. That kind of stuff. And then you got to go perform the show. And so, so then then you need to come down from that experience, which is the excitement and stress of performing. I think you would have to experience it to to understand the the ins and outs of it the various challenges of it. I think people um, you know people see favorite artists on stage or or you know their friends are on tour or they see the you know the social media posts and they it's no one ever gets the full story you know what I mean what, what they hear is like oh man you have like a fruit plate and whatever alcohol you want in the in the dressing room that's ridiculous you have a guitar tech like you haven't changed your strings in six months your own strings you know what i mean and that is that fruit plate yeah go, keep going <laughs> <laughs> we, we do always have a nice fruit plate uh you know that stuff is amazing mm-hmm. right and they're like yeah. like cry me a river bro like you know and i would say yes that stuff is amazing and i'm very fortunate to be on this gig in particular in a gig that that cares about how the people are doing. Mm-hmm. So consequently, we stay at nicer hotels, and the travel usually isn't outrageous. Although sometimes it's unavoidable. The travel is outrageous. Yeah. Uh, and those things take a toll, and it takes a toll on your relationships at home. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, again, the show is the easiest part. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, it's like, what do you do with that? That 
adrenaline come down for the next four hours. Well, it's not only the come down, but like you might have to do it all again the next day. Right. So you're in a very kind of like constant up and down kind of mode. And I'm sure that takes a huge toll. That's right. So I, you know, so like the key word for me in the last 10 years has been balance. Um, Interestingly, this is a song I never have to play. It gets played every night, and I never play it. Really? Yeah, it just does a solo. How do you like that? I like it. <laughs> I, I stand off stage, crowd goes wild, and we go out and play one more song. It's great. Just the fact that it's on <laughs> right now. <laughs> the funny, man, I was, I was in a store in South Street many years ago when I was playing with an artist named Vivian Green and I had a couple of hits in the Neo Soul era and um, I played with her for a few years and and one of her hits was on the radio and it came on it was unexpected you know and I was like playing with her at the time and I said to this woman standing next to me I, I play for this person and she gave me like a harumph like I, you know like, like why are you talking to me like you don't you know, it's like <laughs> you know Tell it to somebody who cares. Yeah, it was, she was like not. And in retrospect, I, you know. You were just excited. I you was, wanted to share that with yeah, somebody. That's she all. was like, no, I'm not interested. <laughs> uh, so, interestingly, like, you know, you run into this every once in a while. Yeah. Like, that's all, that but I don't, I don't tell anybody anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what would you say for this? But like, I don't actually play on this. I don't one. play. On this. <laughs> How perfect is that? I mean, come on. A John Legend song just happens to play while we're finishing lunch. That's serendipity for you. I want to thank Ben O'Neill for this wonderful conversation. Be sure to check out his EP Light Volume 2. And maybe you'll even catch him at a John Legend show if you can get tickets. A quick reminder that this show is produced with support from my Patreon community. So if you are hearing this on a public platform like Spotify or Apple Podcasts and you enjoy what you're hearing and would like to support it, please visit patreon.com slash johnkimfay and consider becoming a subscriber for as little as $2 a month. You'll be helping to feed working musicians and supporting a growing archive of great conversations. Thank you to everybody who already supports me on Patreon, and thank you for listening today. I'm John Kim Fay, and I'll catch you next time on Talking at the Diner. Talking at the diner